it is a beautiful thing to have people be gentle to you, to believe in you. I needed it because when I went back to India, the stories were all negative. Just another Indian who had buckled. Just the same old story. You get branded, put in a box, and that's it. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? We have to be very quiet and not move anything but the tiniest of muscles. Oh. I'm preparing. (laughs) For a second, I thought we were in a library. (laughs) (laughs) Which we are very familiar with. But but no, and I'm wearing a heavy vest and everything. It's my podcasting outfit. <laughs> For today, at least. <laughs> Don't let the heavy vest weigh you down because you need to. You can't slump over and do a podcast. You got to get air into your lungs. You got to sit up straight. Exactly. Although I guess and position the... yourself just so, because if you twitch your toe, the whole show is ruined. <laughs> We, if you didn't get what we were talking about, we're talking about Air Rifle because we read the book A Shot at History, My Obsessive Journey to Olympic Gold and Beyond by Abhinav Bindra or by Abhinav Bindra with Rohit Brijnath. And Book Club Claire is back to talk with us about this book. Take a listen. Claire, welcome back. It is good to have you back on the show. It's good to be back. And we are talking about the book a shot at history and we've learned that we've been saying the athlete author's name wrong so it is really it's a bin of bindra a bin of bindra who co-wrote the book with rohit brijnath and it is about his journey to become india's first individual olympic gold medalist which he won at beijing 2008 so claire let's let's talk about the book I don't have a whole lot of experience with shooting events at the Olympics or shooting in general. Uh, So I was really impressed by his explanations in the book. And I learned a lot about an event at the Olympics that I probably would not tune into, even if it was the only thing on at the Olympics, I'll be completely honest. But I do know that, Jill, you have some experience with shooting, and uh, I wanted to know what you thought of their explanations, because you actually have something on which you can build with your with your uh, knowledge. Yeah, so this I thought was really interesting, and I'm really glad he explained the sport, which even though I've shot, I've really only shot uh, 22 rifles for biathlon, and I had like one afternoon doing skeet with before I learned that that was a quick slippery slope to addiction. Because uh, if you've ever tried trap or skeet, oh, it is so much fun. But the air rifle shooting has always fascinated me because they stand so still and look like they hardly move. And when you look at it on the surface, you think, well, why is this a sport? How are these people athletes? But then you, when you read what uh, Abinov has to say, it's so fascinating and so technical and so difficult of a sport that it really makes me want to watch it now. Allison, I know that we Joe was just mentioning about the, the precision and, and how much it is a sport. Um, a lot of it is static, motionless movement. How do you feel? Like, could you literally stand for all of that time, you know, in one place and still feel comfortable. (laughs) I can't even sit and record the show without bouncing all over the place. (laughs) I could never do that. But I did when he was talking so much about his lack of flexibility with his hip to his elbow. And of course, I immediately had to try that. And 
I'm wondering, because I could do what he was talking about that he had trouble doing, but there's no way I could then hold anything with any kind of strength or control. So the position that they're in is unbelievable that they hold this. And like you're saying, they are very static, but it's the tiny little motions. It's a finger. It's a, a slight tip of the hip. It's, you know, a turn, you know, these tiny little motions that throw everything off the control that they have to have over all those tiny muscles that you forget are even there is amazing. And each gun is programmed to their exact specifications. So he mentioned at one point in competition, his gun had had been like mishandled in some sort of way. So when he was shooting, even though he was doing the same thing he'd always done, it was off. And it was just by mere millimeters and it made such a big difference in the, in the competition. I can't even imagine that this is, this is the kind of sport that I don't understand very well because I'm so used to going from like point A to point B or throwing something from point A to point B or getting something in a basket. This is just stand focus. (laughs) And those, those boggle my mind. And I want to know what you thought of his journey from Sydney, actually, I think was his first games, all the way through London. At one point in his Olympic and also international career, do you think he really started to step up in terms of how well he did in competitions? For me, Sydney was a big turning point for him because even though it was his first games, he had been kind of like a prodigy in the sport. And I don't want to say he got a little schooled, but he learned a lot from that games and learned what he needed to do to take it to the next level and become greater. And so that was really interesting to me. And I found it fascinating after the disappointment in Athens, his ability to come back and refocus and not do it out of anger and not do it out of almost spite towards what had happened in, in those games that he was favored and he didn't win. And, and there was actually a technical problem uh, where there was a bounce in the floor and you think, Oh, a bounce in the floor. But when you're talking about millimeters, that makes a huge difference. And that he didn't seem to dwell on that was remarkable to me that he You know, some athletes, when they have a huge disappointment, use it to feed them. But he had to put it behind him and then move forward. So I thought that was a huge turning point, just in his ability to not be the prodigy that needed to be schooled, but to really focus on his goal. Right. Well, because the anger didn't really work for him, in a sense. And he learned that. You see how he's got kind of a temper, in a sense, growing up. But you're right that that was a like a level of he reached a level of maturity and learned how to make something work for him. Yeah, I know. I I thought that his coaches really assisted with the training that they, he gave him, and I was kind of surprised at how few native Indian coaches he had. He was going all over the world to have coaches to work with him. Do you think that that is a result of the system that he had to work with in his native country? Or do you think that was him kind of reaching for the best? I absolutely thought it was the system. And I think what was so interesting was because India did not have a training center for him, you know, didn't have a Colorado Springs or a Lake Placid the way the United States does, actually made him better because he created his own team, his own very specific group of people that worked for him. I liked that part of it. And I, and I would love to ask him that question, you know, would you have preferred to just be able to stay, you know, be an American athlete, stay in Colorado Springs, train in one place, or was it better for you to cobble together your own village? Because that's what he ended up doing, you know, going to Germany, going to Colorado Springs, going to, uh, at one point he was in South Africa. Am I remembering that right? Mm -hmm. And working with an Australian and all these people coming together. And what I thought was the most interesting thing about that is they, his team 
didn't work with each other. Like he worked with each of his people separately and he was the connecting factor. I I liked that he was working with people that really could fine tune him instead of saying, okay, this is how we do it. They worked with him and they said, okay, this is how we think you can advance. Well, Heinz and Gabi were the, were the probably the most important people. And Gabi especially was the one that uh, Bindra specifically mentions over the course of the book, which means she had the technical prowess and really kind of pushed his buttons a little bit. I liked how how much Gabi was in the book because it shows how much of an influence uh, that she was on Bindra's career. And I have to say the the letdown after Beijing was probably the most interesting thing to read because a lot of times if you're reading about a gold medal athlete, they might stop their book or their, or their talk after they win the gold. But Bindra, especially in this edition that we have, which is later, a later edition than his first one, which I think the first one came out in 2011. This is uh, a little ways after that. It does show he does have kind of a downfall after Beijing, I want you to think personally, and anybody listening, I want you to think personally too. When you hit that high, how low did you get afterwards? Uh, how can you relate to to Bindra and how he was dealing with the joy of winning? Or uh, should I say, as that documentary gave us, how did you deal with the price of gold? Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, you you do have that low after you achieve and if you don't think beyond like what's next there is that sense of loss and a sense of well what do I do now and especially with I mean he went from being nobody in the country really to being just one of the most famous people in India and having so much attention and so many opportunities, you could say, with, you know, you know, he could have been in a Bollywood film, he could have been in, in all these other, done all these other things. And, and some of the opportunities he did do, like he did go for a ride in a fighter jet, and, which I thought was really cool. And, and it's just really interesting, like once that all dies down and goes away, like what's left and what do you do now? And that's, that's an interesting puzzle to read him going through. And trying to figure out. And the idea of, do you stay in your sport or you, do you retire? Mm, yeah. You know, there, there are so many sports where there isn't a natural next step. You know, even with figure skating, okay, then you go on the professional circuit or, or so, there's a professional place to go in some sports. And then in other sports, it's just, you know, by the time you're 25, you can't physically manage it any longer so you or you want to have children or you want to do something but this is the kind of sport where it's it's definitely how much you want to commit to it you know you could probably have a 35 year old competing in this sport if they've done all the training I mean because again it's those small muscles it's not your decathletes who are trying to right. jump, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of, of energy and sport to it. So yes, I'm glad he included that. The one thing I wanted to say about Gabby is I, I wonder if his devotion to Gabby is not the right word, but his, his reception of her coaching was because of his relationship with his mother. And I'll get all Freudian. There were a lot of strong women in this. You know, he has a very strong sister. He had a very strong mother. He has this very strong female coach. And he doesn't talk about that at all as a theme. And yet I saw it. That was cool to see, I must say. When you come across stories about men, it's rare that you get women that are not just like, this was the woman in my life who changed everything. And she's a woman. Did I tell you that she's a woman? And it wasn't, it wasn't out in the open like that. It was just so, it was just mentioned normally. And I appreciated that because it meant that he had no issue with her being a woman and also being his coach, that he just appreciated her for who he, who she was and how she helped him out. I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly with that. 
that it wasn't part of the story that he had a female coach. It didn't matter. He, these are his coaches. These are his people. And again, when we were talking about the system, I wonder if because he was kind of pulling all these individuals that he was able to do that and never thought of it that way because it wasn't strange. He was just pulling these people to make him better. And she was not only coaching him. It mentioned several times in several Olympics that she had to go and coach other shooters. So she was a high-profile coach no matter where she went. I think it was the Italians that she also coached, so she had to kind of help out with them as well. It's cool to, to hear about someone I'm, I'm not familiar with at all, but to hear how much how important she is to the sport of shooting. It's really cool. And just you were asking earlier about the dynamics of shooting when they were talking about the coach and the setup and all the things ahead of time and is everything in its place. Never would have thought of any of that. You line up, you shoot. When we read these stories about sports we don't know, it's so interesting how intricate everything is. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, the subtitle of the book is My Obsessive Journey to Olympic Gold and Beyond. And he is completely obsessed. And I personally loved that because I love knowing the details and how he thought about all of the little tiny details down to let me get the ammunition that they're going to have at Beijing. And I'm going to save that ammunition for that time down to recreating what the range was going to look like. Cause he had been there. So he recreated it at home and it's just on, on one level, it's insane. The level of detail he put into it on another level. I really admire how devoted he is to, to achieving perfection or achieving being the best and thinking about every little thing that needs to go into that. And I really got that from that book and this book. And, and I think that pretty much every Olympian does do that, but he, he was able to articulate it in a way that really came across. What I love, I loved the voice that both he and the co-author brought to the, the book itself. And as I was reading it, I'm thinking, I would like to be friends with him now that he's retired, <laughs> but I would not have wanted to be friends with him then because of that obsessiveness. I think he sounded like an, just a very good egg, as my, <laughs> as my mom would say. He's a good egg. Just like if you were friends with him, he would be an excellent friend. But if you knew him in his competitive days, especially around Beijing, it would have been very tough to be in that bubble. Unless you spoke the same language. I mean, it's, we're I, I also think, the same. I think even if you were, because I do consider myself slightly obsessive and I, and I can get to where he was going. And I think two people who are like that could probably make each other insane. That said, I want to find him a wife. <laughs> I feel like he and his mother, his mother and I need to get together and we're going to, we're going to see what we can do for him. He can be a single guy. It's okay. I have to decide with Jill on this one. <laughs> if we're not going to force men on female athletes, let's not do it the opposite way around. But you did bring up a good point with the, the whole writing style. I, I did want to get to that because i that's the one thing that I would constantly dog ear my copy was when I found a really good passage that was written. And I don't know if it was him that put this down or if it was his ghostwriter. I got to give credit to, to Rohit Brzezhnev. If it was him that wrote these passages, then he is fantastic as a writer. And like this one, I just managed to find it's on page 118. If you have the paperback edition that, that I have, but it says, it is a beautiful thing to have people be gentle to you, to believe in you. I needed it because when I went back to India, the stories were all negative. Just another Indian who had buckled. Just the same old story. You get branded, put in a box, and that's it. I was burning inside with anger, with disbelief, with the ignorance of some of the views, but I had to shut up. You lose, you keep quiet, you swallow your excuses. It's the rule. Winning is the only license to talk in sport. And that paragraph, there were some times, and I, I know that I'm getting better at this because there were those points where I went, that was a good passage. <laughs> that was a good paragraph. I really like that. 
were were there any things that stuck out for you? It didn't have to be like a specific like sentence or something, but like an account or a recollection that you took notice when you were reading it. I don't have a particular account, but I agree with you that the partnering with Rohit Brishnath was really good. Rohit seems to be just a top class sports writer in India. And I'm guessing they sat down and and had many, many hours of interviews and then Rohit put this all together. But just the masterful way he brought the information out and maybe these are Abhinav's real words that he said and and Rohit was able to get that out of him. But it, it was just really, really good writing in a way that doesn't always happen with ghostwritten athlete autobiographies. So I, I really appreciated it all the way through the book. And I, I felt like Bintra was very self-aware. He knew the quirks and his failings and his flaws, and he was willing to acknowledge and talk about them. Absolutely. There was, there was no glossing over, yeah, this was, I was not too cool in this situation, or I was a brat over here, or, you know, I threw a temper tantrum. And that he was very willing to show the warts made it a more interesting read because he didn't gloss over that. He didn't say, yes, I won my medal. And I think that's what you were talking about earlier, Claire, where he was talking about the winning the gold medal wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't this whole, you know, rocky redemption at the end and everybody celebrates. It was, okay, we've got this. And now I want to talk about some other things. Here's the bad stuff that happened after. Here's my issues with the Indian sports system. Here's what I want to see change. Here's what I'm doing. So that was helpful in that I think the two authors sat down together and really understood the story they wanted to tell. You know, both Bindra being open and then his partner being able to take that with with such skill. And I also appreciated how he was very frank on, I had the money to do this. And right. that's not always the case in India, where you he's like, I had the money to go over to Germany and get these top-notch coaches and go to other countries and train. And that doesn't happen. And it's now interesting that he's working very hard to have sports centers and, and do that kind of work to bring up people within the sport and within just sports in general in the country. I had no, I mean, other than when we talked to Shiva Keshavan about luge, which was not a, I don't want to say a popular sport in India, but there was no basis for it. You know, there was no history of it when, when uh, through his competition years, but a sport like shooting, you would think India would be racking up medals in it and they're not. And why is that? You certainly have the population. You certainly have sports culture there in the sense of there's a lot of kids who play sports, but there isn't that elite sports culture there where they can support their athletes. And I think what what you were talking about, Jill, that it's all privately funded, that there isn't the superstructure to hold, and the infrastructure to hold these athletes up. And that's sad because you're wasting so much incredible talent. There are countries that do have government-funded programs that churn out good athletes. There are some that have government-funded programs that don't. They don't use their resources wisely. And then there's places like America, which don't have government-funded that does well, and other countries that don't have government-funded that leave so much on the table. And I think we're kind of seeing a result of that in India, where I believe they do have some government-funded things but it's for high-profile sports, things that they're good at. Cricket was mentioned a few times in here. I'm sure cricket's maybe one of them, football. Field hockey, I think, is another sport, a lot of team sports, likely. It's it's unfortunate to see a, a program that is kind of failing its population where there's so much potential there, it's just not reaching out as much as it could. I mean, you can look at China and India as kind of the two extremes in the sense of China has almost a militaristic view of developing Olympic athletes. And when we read the second mark, the abuse that those athletes endure, 
you have to achieve, you have to win, you're taken away from your families as young children, and they, they breed these athletes, and if you've got to win a gold medal. And India kind of has these paternalistic officials who kind of do it the way they've always done it, and nobody's really paying attention. And then the athletes get slammed when they don't win. So it, it those two stories kind of stick in my, my head as the opposite ends because, you know, you've got two very dense countries, you know, lots of population. And why have they had such incredibly different trajectories in sports? I am glad that Bindra decided to point this out in his book. He was not afraid to hide behind his gold medal and kind of say, well, thank you to the government body of India for helping me out or the sports government body of India. He pointed out, this is the problems I had. These are why I had to have international coaches. And this is how we are trying to improve things. So I give him all the credit in the world for not only talking about his own flaws, but the flaws of, of the system around him as well. I, I, th- I appreciated that a lot. And the passage that you read, Claire, about when you've got the gold medal, now you've got the microphone. Because nobody can look at him and say, oh, you're just serving sour grapes because you didn't win. He won. And he says, this was still a huge problem for me. Mm -hmm. And this would have made it so much easier. And this is what we can do differently for the next generation of athletes coming up. Yeah, Between him and and Shiva, I think there's a lot of potential for the the athletes that have come to create a system that isn't just dwelling on what we've always done. So I got to give them both credit. Though they have both faced pushback. Of course. In in terms of achieving actual rank within the sports community in India. And that's so frustrating because these are people who clearly love their sports, clearly love the Olympics, clearly want sports in India to progress. And the old guard is saying, no, we want to keep doing it the same way. And it's so frustrating because now Shiva and Bidra are my best friends because I've read the book and we talked to (laughs) Shiva once. So I want this all to happen for them. But, you know, and I say this so much on the the podcast, anything that gets in the way of the athletes doing what they want to do gets me so angry. And bureaucracy, clearly in India, and I'm sure in many other countries – gets in the way of the athletes achieving what they want to achieve. Right. When we've talked about Tokyo cutting the number of officials that get to go to the games, I kind of think of India and, oh, how many people are they going to have to cut who aren't going to be directly participating in the games, but uh, have a position in which maybe they do something, maybe they don't, but they get to go to the games, and that's expected of the position, which is why they bother with it. And then the poor guy doesn't get to have his own coach. Right. Because that's a slot that's filled by the assistant director to the sub-director to the associate president of whatever. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. Associate president <laughs> of whatever. <laughs> Honestly... This goes all over the place where the pandemic and everything that has come from it has really caused people to look at themselves and look at at what they do, whether it's in sport or something else, and realize how much do we have that we don't need. And they've been able to shed some some dead weight almost because they realize that they don't need it and they'll save a couple bucks from it. So when, and I say when, even though I still hear announcers saying, if the games take place next year, I'm like, when? When I go, it's going to be interesting to see where the cuts are, and if I'm going to even notice, and if if athletes are going to even notice. Maybe they're going to be the ones that notice it more than, than the fans do, but those kinds of things, you find where, where your strengths are, and I think some people realize this person is important, and I need them. So I, I think that current athletes who, or the athletes who are coming down from their careers, those are the ones who are going to be really shaping the future of sport in, in countries everywhere, especially in, in the Asian countries. You know what we, person we really need? The floor checker. Oh, oh, to check the floor. Oh, my goodness. That made me so mad. You are dealing with an Olympics. You cannot have that. Right. So 
it, he's at Athens and he he's he shoots just ridiculously poorly. He doesn't understand what happened. Did he choke? And then the other person in a different competition, I don't know if it was a different, if it was the women's competition, also shoots very poorly from that spot. And they found that there was like the centimeter bounce in the floor and it threw everything off. And it was this reminded me, and I think he mentioned it at Sydney where in the women's gymnastics competition, the horse for the vault was not set properly and girls were just flying off the horse all over the place. And there was injuries and disasters of scoring. And it's stuff like that that makes you crazy. Because when I had my kitchen redone, there's a little spot on my floor that has a bounce. So I have a little thing that goes underneath the table so the table doesn't wobble. You can't do that at the Olympics. You can't have a little thing under there that makes it not wobble. Doesn't it just not surprise you, though, that it happened in Athens? It's like of, of all of all of the the locations, of course it was going to be Athens, the one that nobody said was going to be ready. So it doesn't doesn't surprise me too much. And yet there was that similar incident in Sydney, considered one of the best games of all time. That's true. And Rio, we didn't hear too much about facilities other than the water, other oh, than the green the algae pools, water, the algae water. But most people, the facilities, they were not affecting competition, you know, any issues with, with facilities. So that there's an issue with the facility that affects the competition. I don't know how Abanov didn't just lose his mind over that. Like that would still be bothering me in 2020. Even if I had won a gold medal later, like the, I'd be like, that floor yeah, and it's what you can control versus what you can't control. And it's amazing how much he worked to be in control of every little detail. And would he have thought during, you know, was it being in control of every little detail that didn't give him the skills to figure, to adapt to when he, to something that he wasn't in control of? Because would you have, thought, like, I, I don't know, I, because really you have so much time to shoot your rounds and are you just going to stand there and shoot because it, every every time you step down and don't have your rifle in place that's going to mess you up as well so i think everybody tries to stay in position and shoot their entire round as well as they can but would you notice that or would you be attuned to what is different about this environment and kind of troubleshoot things the, the best thing you can do is what you were saying, figure out all of the, the troubleshooting you're going to have to do and planning for the things that you wouldn't normally plan for. So when the vault is too low, you can somehow overcome it in some way to, to get yourself a medal of some sort, because there's going to be rainstorms and who knows, earthquakes that are going to affect competition. Who knows? But you have to be, the, the best athletes are going to be the ones that overcome it, not the ones that complain. Although I think a few athletes have gotten gold medals from complaining about something. But we, th we don't think of those athletes as better as the other ones. You know, overcoming adversity is, is the way to, to figure it out. Last thoughts on the book before we wrap up. A shot at history. I'm still looking. I'm still going to find him a wife. You can't convince me otherwise. Because <laughs> I want there to be all little binges running around with their tiny little guns. <laughs> okay, well, I, I will maintain my position. <laughs> he can be single if he would like to be single. But I loved this book. I'm so glad you found it. I loved reading about the perspective that he had just from being from a different country. And also every once in a while, he'd mention what he and other Indians thought of team USA. And it was just, you know, shiny and sleek and all this stuff. And it, it's really interesting to hear somebody else talk about your country and learn their perspective and, and get that you know, just a global worldview. But it was really well written. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It was just it was fascinating. And I have to say, if you get it, get a physical copy because the first few pages are diagrams 
and it points out every single little detail. First of all, it shows the profile of the shooter. So it'll have, it has his equipment, the weird, uh, I, I don't even know, uniform or kit or whatever he wears. It's so, it's a heavy piece that just keeps him kind of weighted down. I thought that was fast. It's, it made so much sense once you think about it. And then a diagram of the gun and a lot of that stuff. Like I mentioned before, I don't have a history of, of shooting or shooting athletics. So this was, I got to say, very impressive book. I must, it's ranked up there with the one. I went through yeah. this book very, very quickly because it was just, it was a well-written book. Never mind the subject matter, but just the quality of the writing was great. So a lot of these ghost-written athlete biographies or autobiographies are just really unpleasant to read as reading, but this was an exception. So Agreed. even if you're not interested in shooting, it's just an interesting athlete story. And you get highlights from five different Olympics. If you're getting one of the current editions, you get Sydney, Athens, Beijing, London, and Rio all in, in one. So it's interesting to, to see those different perspectives. So thank you for reading this. And if you read it with us on the podcast, thank you for picking up the book. Excellent. And next, our next book is? Our next book takes us back to the winter. And it is called World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team. And it's by Peggy Shin. And I'm excited for this because I don't know if it's going to get mentioned in there, but the Here Comes Diggins scream is one of my favorite audio moments in all Olympics history. I can watch that call. It's been over two years and I still cry every time. It's just so moving to me. I wonder if, and I kind of wonder if that's what the miracle, or, you know, do you believe in miracles is like for another generation of people? I'm sure because my dad, life. yeah, my dad talks about that all the time, that, that broadcast. So I'm sure it is the same to the same thing for us as the Here Comes Dickens is for us. So yeah, I'm excited. I can say I love both of those calls because I remember them both. <laughs> I'm a little and jealous. I will, and I will say they both still give me chills but that here comes diggins is so much fun because it's such joy especially because you don't have to wait another 20 minute period like you did in hockey to see if the u.s would actually pull it off this was <laughs> last second right is there. she actually going to overcome and she does it's insane so we get to read all about it in this book not just about diggins and keegan randall but about the whole formation of the cross-country ski team. I'm interested to see how that history plays out, and I hope that you will all read it with us. I'm excited because Peggy Shin also writes a lot of articles that get posted on TeamUSA.org, and I find her to be a very good writer, so I am really looking forward to reading this book, too. Well, thank you so much, Claire. We really appreciate it, as always. Thank you so much, Claire. It was great to read a book that had a non-U.S. perspective. So if you know of other non-U.S. Olympic books, please let us know about them. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. We are looking forward to our next book, World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team by Peggy Shin, which we'll talk about in January. When we're feeling all snowy. That's right. Here comes Diggins. Here comes Diggins. Yes, indeed, with the big call by Chad Samala, which was on NBC here in the States, which is one of those iconic broadcasting moments in Olympic history. We'd like to give a shout out to our Patreon patrons. Their support provides some much needed funding for us to be able to have the time to produce this show, especially when we're looking at two games within six months of each other. So if you appreciate the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. Donor rates start as low as $1 a month, which is like a quarter a show. Not bad. That's pretty that's awesome. A, that's a good deal. Do you remember when I was a child, and, and you're ageless, so I don't know how old you are, where you could call things and it would like be a recording of a celebrity? It was like, it wasn't 1-800 numbers because you had to pay. And they were like a quarter each. It was like a quarter for a minute listening to you know, some famous person leave you a message. Oh. So the point I'm trying to make is this is way cheaper than that. And you, you get, get more for your money. whole shows for a quarter. <laughs> Not to mention bonus stuff too. That's right. Different levels have bonus material. Hey, why don't we check in with our team? 
Welcome to Shukflistan. Swimmer John Neighbor is a candidate for one of the two new positions on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Board of Directors that were created for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Alumni Association. He's up there with, uh, I think, Donna DeVerona is on that list, too. That's the other name I remember. But I saw John Neighbor, and I thought, oh, I know who's a good candidate. But here's the thing. If both John Neighbor and Donna DeVerona get elected, then Donna DeVerona is going to have to stand on all the kickboards when they take the picture together. <laughs> Remember that story he was telling yeah. us? Because he's so tall and Deverona is so tiny. Well, we'll find out. Voting continues until uh, mid-November, so we'll be on a lookout for the election results. Jackie Wong is on the latest episode of the Olympic Channel podcast, which explores artistry versus technical elements in figure skating. That should be interesting. I haven't listened to it yet. I will dip in and out of that podcast just to see what they're up to. But when I saw Jackie was on, gotta listen. Absolutely. Chelsea Memo will be on the cover of the November 2020 issue of Inside Gymnastics magazine. That's very exciting. So you can find more at uh, their website. Her ankle is healing nicely because I've been watching the videos. I'm kind of hooked on that series now. Good. Yeah, and she's been posting the different pictures of her and her various leotards. She broke out a lot. She's been breaking out the historical collection. <laughs> so I'm wondering what she wore on the cover. We'll have to take a look. Yes. If you haven't watched it, you would love her latest episode because she's doing some rehab stuff and, well, just training without using her ankle much. So it's a lot of upper body and other trampoline type stuff. But her daughter is helping, too. And her little daughter is so adorable. So tune into that episode on YouTube. Three generation of people flipping around. That is amazing. It is amazing. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant were featured on D3 Nation podcast, which talks about college division three wrestling. That's always a good time. Battle of the Blades, the CBC show that pairs figure skaters with hockey players, is beginning again. So Megan Duhamel is one of the contestants, and she is skating for the Sandra Schmierler Foundation, which raises funds to purchase a life-saving equipment for NICUs across Canada. Megan benefited from the foundation when her daughter Zoe, Zoe was born prematurely and had to spend two weeks in the hospital. So she is doing this to give back. The videos that she has been posting are fantastic because she and her partner have been trying more complicated elements. There was a little throwing involved. Oh. There was a little lifting involved. And every time he posts the videos, he's like, don't drop her. Don't drop her. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, just toss me around. It's fun. I've been doing this for 25 years. It's fine. <laughs> So be sure to vote for her throughout the show, and we will keep uh, tabs on how they're doing. Uh, staying in Canada, the Olympic Park of Montreal is one of three finalists for the Project Management Institute's International Project of the Year, which re rewards excellence around the world. So if you remember from a couple of years back when we were up in Montreal and talked with Cedric Esemini and got the tour of the park, it's nice to see that they are uh, doing well. Because that's one of those parks for how financially disastrous Montreal was for the city. The uh, legacy of that park is one of the best. Yeah, I think they have tried so hard to turn that into something. And it's nice that they're aware that they have a stadium that's not the best architectural wonder of the world, I guess you could say. <laughs> Maybe on the outside. But that park is used so much. You know, the, the swimming facilities and the, they really figured out how to use that as part of the city. Yeah. And finally, Claire Egan was named to the roster for the U.S. Biathlon's pre-World Cup on snow camp in Austria, which begins on November 1st. And then based on that camp, U.S. Biathlon will announce the final roster for their IBU World Cup races, which start in late November. I love how Claire keeps saying she's going to retire every year. And then somehow she just can't, she just nope. can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop, at least for now. Here's to hoping she does well at camp and gets chosen for the World Cup and has a great season. I'm excited. I know that, you know, pandemic stuff and everybody has to take precautions, but, you know, biathlon's coming back. <laughs> that makes you so happy. Oh, we have some news from Pyeongchang this episode. 
Didn't Pyeongchang already happen? It did already happen, but you know what? The U.S. Department of Justice has charged six Russian intelligence officers in an alleged global computer hacking operation to undermine, retaliate against, or otherwise destabilize a whole bunch of things, including uh, some global businesses and critical infrastructure, things in the Ukraine, things in the country of Georgia, the French elections, and also the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. And this happened after the Russian athletes were banned from participating under their nation's flag as a consequence of the Russian government-sponsored doping effort. So was it their fault that those light-up Olympic rings didn't work properly? Was that as far as the hackers got with the Pyeongchang destruction? Wait, when was that? I think it was the opening ceremonies where the drones didn't work. Uh, it could have been because one of the things, they had two attacks on Pyeongchang. So oh. from December 2017 through February 2018, they did a whole bunch of spear phishing campaigns and malicious mobile apps targeting South Korean officials and citizens and Olympic athletes and partners and visitors and IOC officials. That's one. But then they also tar they had a, a mission called Olympic Destroyer where they targeted the Pyeongchang IT systems specifically to attack the opening ceremonies. Oh, and the opening so maybe that was related. They, they almost went down. There was a really, really good article in Wired, which maybe, I, I think listener Anthony may have posted this in our Facebook group, or he sent it to us or something like that, because it's really fantastic that talks about how right before the opening ceremonies were supposed to begin, there was a malware attack, and they almost didn't happen. It, it's kind of like the, the Sydney 2000 uh, cauldron lighting took a while, but this was like... They had to get much, everything right, back Right, this up. was much more yes. serious. Mm -hmm. Okay, the word Olympic and destroyer should not be in the same sentence. No. That right there is a problem. Right, unless you're a B-boy or B-girl. Yeah, but still, then you'd be, you know, Small's defender. <laughs> the UK's National Cybersecurity Center also exposed malicious cyber activity from Russia's GRU, that's uh, kind of their intelligence outfit, against organizations involved in the Tokyo Games before they were postponed. So we have a whole bunch of situations going on. The U.S. has uh, filed charges against a group of people, and we'll, we'll see what actually happens. And then uh, Reuters reported that the Kremlin denies the attacks. Oh, that's really believable. <laughs> Do we have some more happy things? Yeah, let's move on. Because that just really made me mad. Oh, let's move on to some Tokyo 2020 news. More venues are going to reopen. Excellent. Inside the games reports. Now, this weekend, remember, the swimming venue reopens. So that's good. The tennis park is also going to be open. Uh, it will open uh, this weekend also and will be uh, open to sports federations only for about a week. And then from November 8th to February 28th, personal use will be granted. So the public will be able to go and use it. They'll be able to use the indoor courts and Sports Federation can use the center court, too, as well for practice. They're not going to be able to use the outdoor courts and the show court because they want to maintain proper court conditions for that. Well, they don't want to get the courts worn out before the, before we actually yeah, have exactly, the Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that will get expensive. And right. And we already know money's an issue. Money's an issue everywhere right now. Uh, the Tokyo Metropolitan Gymnasium, which will host table tennis, will be open, but just as sports federations. They'll be able to use the main arena and the sub-arena from December 21st to March 31st. And then there's athletics track and indoor pool and training rooms that are part of the building, but they're not going to be reopened to the public because they want to make sure those elements stay secure for the games. So after thinking about those hacking attacks, you never know. What else could go on? So other venues that have opened for use uh, include, besides the swimming venue, the hockey venue, and badminton venues. And then the karate venue has been used again. There was the Kanto Region Karate Tournament, which featured male and female team kumite and kata categories. They had 500 athletes there and 60 teams competed. This was just a closed-door tournament 
And for their COVID procedures, they required Kumite competitors to wear a special mouth shield and face guard during their bouts to limit. And it was like a big plastic thing around the face. Not a huge face shield, but it was more form-fitted to their face. Maybe they should have just worn, like, scuba bubbles. (laughs) Though that would have made them a little top-heavy, so it would have been like weeble wobbles, but they don't fall down. But they would have fallen down because people are kicking them. And then attendance was really limited to just the team members, their staffs, and they had some limited guests. Everybody there had to wear face masks and social distance, both inside and outside the venue. And then they canceled the opening and closing ceremonies of the tournament to prevent unnecessary crowds. Because I guess uh, the karate is experiencing its 50th anniversary this year. So it's kind of a big thing. Uh, Let's move on to some Beijing 2022 news. It was 500 days to go this week. It was, which frightens me. It's like we have, yes, it, we have the two back to back. And it's, whenever you get, and we, I think we've said this before, whenever we get any of those milestone days to go, mm-hmm. first there's, oh, it's this milestone days to go. And then sheer panic. <laughs> right. Because I really haven't paid as much attention to Beijing 2022 and this week I spent some quality time on their website and like, oh, got to keep uh, my eye on this, too. It's six months after Tokyo. You've got to pay more attention. Feels like we are standing in the middle of a short track speed skating rink and we are just going to get barreled. <laughs> the Beijing 2022 Organizing Committee is looking for young filmmakers from all over the world to make its official film. They're choosing 18 winners to join its film crew, and that includes directors, cinematographers, and editors. Details are at the Beijing 2022 website, and the deadline to apply is December 21st, 2020. That's really interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that works and how they they work together. It will also be interesting to see what they focus on. I mean, after we watched the Sydney 2000 film uh, that was a Bud Greenspan production— which Bud Greenspan did so many Olympic movies, but there was so much, mm, not so much, but it really felt like there was a a fair amount of U.S. focus in that. Right. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see with this if they're doing an international team of movie makers, how that affects it, or are they really going to focus who they select from Asia or how it pans out in terms of what the team actually looks like and then what the films turn out to be. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Uh, the organizing committee is also, this is interesting to me in a budgetary sense, because they're integrating the press and broadcasting centers into one main media center. So usually the organizing committee has a main press center for the press and a broadcasting center for broadcasters. And the press center is a little bit smaller and the broadcasting center is like 65,000 square meters. And I, I bet that's where every broadcasting, uh, everyone who holds the rights has their little studios. So what they're going to have instead is a main media center that's going to be 60, 61,000 square meters. So that's smaller than the broadcast center space usually or was slated to be. And the they're they're just going to have them all together. They're not going to have this separate press center, and uh, that will save them money. And they said the reason they can do this is because 5G technology will be in the venues, and the media can do more interviews in the venues themselves so that they don't need the extra space in the press centers or the media I'm, center. I'm surprised that it hasn't been merged before because you would think there would be a lot of overlap in terms of resources that you would need available. Yeah, you would think. That why wasn't it there before? Because why would the organizing committee need to have a broad? Because I'm sure the committee itself has an office in both those centers. If you need resources, why do you need to duplicate that and all that administration? So this kind of makes me wonder, like, oh, why didn't we ever think of this before? Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I wonder if there's an element of this is the way it's always been. So this is the way we're going to do it going forward. 
whereas we have a huge jolt from Tokyo 2020 into, but besides the new norm, which I'm sure there are plenty of people who go, yeah, the new norm, that's really nice. But we don't need to, it's, it's our games, we don't need to worry about that. But I'm sure that that's kind of jolted uh, host cities into really rethinking how they're doing things in a way to uh, save money. Let's move on to some Paralympic news. Inside the Games is reporting that parasailing is trying to return to the Paralympic Games for LA 2028. It had been featured at every games between Sydney and Rio, and it was being dropped for Tokyo 2020. And then it tried to get into Paris 2024 and got denied. So the International Paralympic Committee said that parasailing was removed from the, ja uh, the Tokyo Games because they could not fulfill their minimum criteria for worldwide reach. And same with uh, football seven aside. So you won't see that at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo either, which is why badminton and taekwondo will be making their debuts at the Paralympic Games. Isn't it interesting that those two sports that were dropped are certainly way more expensive than the two sports that they're adding in. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause, and the I mean, two sports being added in are, well, they're both individual sports. But, right. but you're right, a boat, a boat is very expensive. And I would think a boat outfitted for a Paralympian would be insanely expensive. I don't know. We'll have to look at it. I wonder if that's, that, it, I think, I wonder if it depends on the disability mm. and what they need to use to move the sails around. And how, how that works. Hmm. Now we got something else to look into. World Sailing has had a parasailing development program, and they've increased participation by 30%. Now it's time to get some discussions going to try to get back on the program for 2028. Well, sailing is naturally a socially distant sport. Yeah, so that that's a good one. <laughs> Stay away from me. I'll just steer it away. <laughs> Unless you're like a pirate and you're trying to board somebody else's boat. That would safe. be a fun Olympic sport. Piracy. <gasps> <laughs> Can you get the loot from another boat? Ark. And if you do successfully, you make that boat's captain walk the plank and dive into the water. <laughs> Which could be really dangerous if it's in Rio again. Right. And then what you would do is because life-saving is still a provisional. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. Right. Life-saving is recognized by the IOC, so it could potentially become an Olympic sport again. And so you could have life-saving be part of this, and they would go in and save the person that got uh, had to walk the plank off their ship. So that then you're using one venue for two sports. There you go. Magic. Oh my gosh, we have saved you so much money. <laughs> and finally, we've got some U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee news. The U.S. OP Foundation announced results of its special two-month fundraising drive for its COVID Athlete Assistance Fund. They've announced they've raised $1.42 million from more than 6,000 donors and all of that money is going to be given directly to eligible athletes who are in training and contention to go to Tokyo. They say it's uh, 1,220 athletes, and they'll each get a one-time grant of $1,163. Well, I know when we were talking to Deanna Price, you know, now <laughs> several months ago, she had to buy a whole set of equipment. Mm-hmm basically construct her own gym in her garage so she could continue training. So that $1,200 could make a huge difference. It could. It for could athletes pay, I mean, who had like, to do that. Especially like it could pay some rent for a, a little while, depending on where you live. That could really go far if you live in a, a cheap area. Right. And people who are college athletes, who college athletics are not happening, or people whose sideline jobs they were laid off from. So even though $1,200 doesn't sound like a lot per athlete it can make such a huge difference to so many of these people in these smaller sports where they don't have all these sponsorships or or hope for sponsorships and just sponsorships we know right now are hard to come by because there's no competitions right so nicely done usop foundation yes and the donors i mean it's really the donors who did this not the foundation 
that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you thought of our book club book. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Uh, next week, we will talk with Madeline Manning-Mims, who is a four-time Olympian and since 1988 has been a chaplain at the Olympic Games. So be on the lookout for that. And as we go off to meet the music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. I've been doing this for 25 years. It's fine.